0: Good morning. Of course, we will be continuing in our sermon or our series this morning through Exodus. And we have uh, one of the most climactic scenes in the book of Exodus. And so I'm very excited to be moving through this text with you this morning. And I believe that you will be blessed by it and encouraged and uh, perhaps even challenged. And so to give you some uh, background, as as we always like to do, we are going to, I'll give you a little brief summary of what we looked at last week. We saw that the Lord did not take Israel in a direct path to the promised land, but instead he had them circle around so that they would head towards the Red Sea. If you remember, there's a direct route from the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan, the promised land. They simply had to move underneath the Mediterranean Sea. And the the lands truly border one another. But that's not what the Lord did. And in doing all this, The Lord told Moses that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart again so that he might pursue Israel. And Pastor Dave unpacked for us last week that the Lord purposed for Israel to take the long way home because the Lord was accomplishing a greater deliverance than if they had just went straight to Canaan. And it's in this long route home that the Lord would be magnified before the eyes of the Egyptians and before the eyes of his people, Israel. And so now we are coming to this critical point in the long way home. Israel are literally on the bank of the Red Sea, and they see Pharaoh and his army coming. They feel pressed at the rear and trapped at the front. And so in fear, they murmur, and complain. They question, why did you take us from Egypt just to die? And so that's where we're at right now. And so we will begin in verse 15 and uh, through the end of the chapter. So if you would, I know you just got comfortable. If you would, and if you're able, please stand at the reading of the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, By a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let us pray. Lord, we come now before you as your people, whose story is in this story, I pray that you would give us insight by your Spirit to the marvels and the wonders of your strong hand of salvation, that we might glory this morning in the exodus of Israel from Egypt, that we might glory in them passing through the waters because you have revealed your goodness, your kindness, and your steadfast covenant love in this act, and we now belong to you, and so this story is our story. Lord, please open our eyes to see these beautiful things, these marvelous things, and I pray that you would be magnified in us and through us, that we, like Egypt, would fear you and believe in you, because we have witnessed your strong hand of salvation. May you be magnified. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and so we're off to a pretty abrupt start in the middle of the chapter. It says very plainly The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In seeming indignation, the Lord questions Moses about Israel's murmuring. And. Truthfully, at this point, Israel should not be questioning anything. They have bore witness to the plagues of Egypt, the killing of the firstborn males of Egypt, the Passover of their homes, and their triumphal exit from the midst of Egypt. In all these things, they have been held and kept by the Lord their God. In all these things. And the Lord has literally given the details of the playbook to Moses. He says repeatedly what he's doing and why he's doing it. We saw that last week in the first half of chapter 14. And again here, at the Lord is actually going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they pursue Israel. It should be no surprise to the people. Now, granted, this is a lot of people. Um, we know it was in the millions, if you include women and children. But still, the Lord has revealed himself and his playbook in perfect detail. And yet here comes Israel, wallowing in fear and perhaps self-pity because Egypt is at their rear, and they have seemed to come to a trap with the Red Sea directly in front of them. And despite the playbook that the Lord has revealed, despite giving them a word that he was intending to display his glory through their salvation and get glory over Pharaoh and his horsemen and his chariots, Israel has become faithless in this moment. At any notion of terror or hardship, the Israelites immediately grumble against the Lord and against his anointed, Moses. They have fallen into unbelief. They have fallen into unbelief. And the question must be asked this morning, how often do we find ourselves in the same pattern? We have, we have undoubtedly bore personal witness to God's strong hand and faithfulness. If we follow Christ and have experienced the salvation and offered through him, we have bore witness to his faithfulness time and time again. And yet, we, like Israel, fail to trust the Lord and his word once calamity arises. But what does the Lord do? What, what does he say Despite seeming terror and despite seeming death and Israel's grumbling and complaining, he says so plainly, why do you cry to me? He commands Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. I'm instantly reminded of a story involving Peter. And perhaps you know this story. You should from the Gospels, hopefully. But in Matthew 14, something quite amazing happens for those of us who have been following Jesus. And we see what happens with one of his disciples. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has fed the 5,000. Which in, in and of itself was a display of his lordship and a lesson for the disciples because they did not believe they could feed the 5,000. And after they distributed the bread and the loaves, 12 baskets are returned, 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. And it was a lesson. And they, go, they move on across the sea, and Jesus stays to pray. And then a storm comes, a storm across the waters, and Jesus walks on the water towards their their boat. And they're nervous. They think they have seen a ghost. But this is what I want to draw out of this. Starting in verse 27, Matthew 14, the text says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Jesus' response to Peter was not, it's okay, I understand. But Peter says, give me the command, and I'll do this. Give me the command, and Jesus gives it so plainly. He gives him the word. He says, come. And Peter starts well. He puts foot to water. And that's probably more than many of us would even attempt. He puts foot to water, but then immediately he loses he loses the direction because he's he turns to the right and to the left and sees the wind. And Jesus rebukes him for it. He saves him because he's merciful. But he says, Oh you of little faith, why? Why did you doubt? And in this same sense of, of, of holy indignance, I believe, the Lord says, Why do you cry to me? I've brought you this far out of Egypt. This far. And now you want to go die back in the land of your slavery. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Our faith, our faith as Christians is tested and proved genuine in our obedience to the commands of God. We must remove from our thinking that genuine Christian faith is anything other than obedience to that which has been revealed by God. You see, our faith is not nebulous, nor is it immaterial, nor is it made up of hunches and feelings. But Christian faith proves itself in action. And this is, we see so plain throughout the law and throughout the Gospels. Christ expects, Expects a response when he calls you to follow him. He gives both grace and command in the call. The grace is that he's called you. He says, follow me. But the same call of grace is the call of command. He says, follow me. He gives us his word to direct us. Our Christian faith is proved. It is substantiated. It is made genuine in our obedience to the command. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. On one side, you can say, the one who has faith is the, one that, is the one who obeys. And on the other side, the one who obeys is the one who has faith. And our response is not, look at what I've done, but rather I trust in the word of God. And therefore, I must act. I must move forward. This is made clear to us in our text this morning. Israel's initial faithlessness was proven by their fear and their complaining. And this fear was itself disobedience because they did not take God at his word. They, they didn't. He had told them the playbook over and over and over again. He had revealed his strong hand over and over and over again. And yet, what do they do? They murmur. They complain. They cry in unbelief. But we see something spectacular happen. After the Lord gives this clear command to Moses... To tell the people, go forward. And he again, again confirms the details of the battle plan. He doesn't directly lead them into the Red Sea, does he? What does he do? He moves behind them. He moves behind them. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Well, the text does tell us that he's dividing Israel from Egypt. And so he serves as the distinction himself. His spirit moves from the front in the, cloud of, in the cloud and in the fire to the rear, and this is a division of sorts, and we'll see that it's a division for judgment's sake, but I want you to hear this. Israel's salvation has been sovereignly decreed by God. They were chosen, they were chosen, and that's inescapable. Their salvation was sovereignly decreed by God, It was graciously being supplied by God, and as we will see, it is powerfully performed by God. Their deliverance, and which is their salvation, it, it's all from God. And yet, and yet, their faith in the God who saves must be proved as genuine. They have to walk by faith and not by sight as they cross the Red Sea. The Lord is holding them and keeping them, but he is at their rear. He's at their rear. In this moment, they are in the darkness of night. It's nighttime. They have no sense of God's presence leading them. No sense whatsoever. Some of them have, may even think he's abandoned them because they knew the fire and the cloud stayed at the front of us and we simply follow. And now, the very presence of God is behind them. It's a very shocking thing to think, well, has he left us? Has he abandoned us? Is he leading another people now? Because it looks like now he's in front of the Egyptians. They are in the darkness of night. And they have no sense of God's presence leading them. Yet the command of God has been given. Go forward. The question must be asked of ourselves. When everything seems dark to us and we have no sense of how the Lord is leading or guiding us, will we obey His commands in faith? In Christ, we must... Be the sort of people who apprehend the Word of God by faith and walk in obedience to it. Anything less than that is unbelief. Anything less than that is unbelief. And so Israel serves as a picture for us. Will we heed the voice of God and walk forward? Will we move forward in faith? Next, we see this picture of what the Red Sea is. It's a two-part picture, and so my next two sections are going to elaborate what the waters serve, what, they, what, what picture they create for us and the message they, they give us. We see in verse 21 Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And so, after this division, Israel goes into the midst of the sea, with the waters being a wall to them on both the left and the right. And what happens? Well, the Egyptians go in too, just like the Lord would say said what happened the Egyptians go in they are pursuing Israel so they too enter the midst of the sea you have two parties in the midst of the sea and we read that all of Pharaoh's horses chariots and horsemen are now in the sea his entire army what's left of them who knows how many perished during the Passover but as both parties move through the sea something, something quite interesting happens verse 24 And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This word, to look down, I I, I think sometimes we... We draw. I don't know if you've seen like the, uh, what is it, George Heston or doesn't matter, old movie about Israel's exodus or any sort of cartoonish Sunday school type films regarding this. None of them can really, I think, accurately portray what's happening here. And, and, and we'll pick up on some of that later. But I looked into how wide is the Red Sea. Well, at its widest point, it's over 100 miles long. So that's clearly not where they're passing through. But at the point figured by many biblical scholars, we're talking somewhere between 12 to 20 miles. So it it takes the course of the night to move through, as the text says. And as you would imagine, with any body of water, it's not flat. It's not flat. It gets deeper as you go further in. And then you, you rise out of it. And at this point, we see the Lord looks down on them. It's this picture of Israel almost being through. They're almost out. Morning is coming. It's, it's on the horizon. And the Lord is at their rear. And they've been steadily working their way through the sea all night. And the Lord, at this critical moment, looks and he sees the Egyptians. And this word here, it, it does just mean look down. But it's this idea of almost looking down from on high and, and making a decision about another. You can almost imagine a king looking at those who serve him or someone who sees a, vi- a village below them while they're on a mountaintop. They they have the the, the uh, angle. They have the the better point of vision. They have the better perspective. And so we can imagine this. They're coming out, and the Lord looks down on them. And this is when the judgments began to take place. He clogs the wheels of their chariots so that they drive heavily. And in... Uh, I believe it's the King James, it says that they begin to swerve. It's chaos, it's panic. They, they don't even know what's happening. So all of a sudden, they're allowed this trajectory with this hatred and disdain and contempt for Israel and Israel's God. They pursue them because the Lord has hardened their hearts. And now, that changes in, in the blink of, of an eye. In a moment, all of a sudden, panic ensues. Panic ensues. And they begin to wake up in this moment and realize what they've done. They have fallen prey to the trap of their own wickedness as they're in the bottom of the Red Sea. They attempt to flee, but it's it's too late. It's too late. The Lord commands Moses again to stretch out his hand, and at this time... At the motion of his hand, the waters begin to fall back. And the Egyptians, though they continually try to escape, they are cast into the sea. And as we saw in the text, none survive. None. They all die. The waters of the Red Sea serve as the waters of judgment. This is a critical motif of the text and of the whole of the scriptures. These waters serve as the waters of judgment. And I hope that this strikes you as very familiar because in Genesis, we see the waters of judgment during the great flood. In Noah's day, the flood waters were the enactment of God's judgment against the wicked, but also his judgment for the righteous. God is a just God, and so judgment is neutral, it is fair by the very nature of God, who is perfectly just. His judgments are just, and therefore they are perfect. We view judgment in this negative sense. You know, our whole world screams, don't judge me. And God judges impartially. He judges for the sake of righteousness and justice. And when He passes judgment, it is good for the righteous. And it is terror for the wicked. And it always will be. And so the floodwaters in Noah's day were the enactment of God's judgment. Noah and his family were declared righteous by God because they feared the Lord and they believed his warning. What did Noah do in response to the command to build an ark? He built it. He built it. He had no sense of actually what was coming, but he heard the command and he obeyed in faith. Noah built the ark in obedience and him and his family entered the ark in faith, in faith. The same motif is happening here And, and it's not an accident. This is how God has designed the scriptures. Israel, despite their grumbling, despite this pattern of unbelief, they obey. They obey and even if it's just for the night because they continue to grumble later, but they obey and they go forward and they pass through the waters by faith. They heeded the command of God. And we know, too, that Moses is a type of Messiah for Israel. And the providential details of Moses' life are actually meant to remind us of Noah. Again, this pattern is throughout the Scriptures. We can start with Adam in the garden, who's given a command to be fruitful and multiply and to steward the earth and take dominion. He fails. And then recreation happens, and all unpack that later, with Noah. And he, Noah gets further than Adam. Adam was placed in a garden. Noah makes his own garden. And Moses is now a type, a better Noah. He's not the truest Noah, but he's a, he's a better one. And we know this because the, the, the details are are unmistakable. In Moses' birth narrative, his mother places him in a basket. But the word used there is actually only used one other time in the Bible. And the word means ark. Noah was placed in an ark. There's only one other ark in the Scriptures. Excuse me, Moses was placed in an ark. And what was the ark or his basket covered in? Pitch. What was the ark covered in by Noah? Pitch. A tar substance. And Moses' very name means to draw out. Pharaoh's daughter gives him this name because she drew him out of the waters, but little did she know was that his name was prophetic because he was going to draw Israel out of the waters. And so this is this retelling in this of what has already taken place in the scriptures, but it's becoming more specific as it pertains to Israel now as the nation. And the point is all this is from God quite literally the waters fall on Egypt though by the hand of Moses Moses is a type of messiah and so because the salvation is from God but it's enacted through the hand of Moses Israel herself has actually become a participant in the judgment against her enemy through Moses as excuse me through Moses as a head of Israel And as he's not only just a figurehead, but he's the covenant head of Israel. Him holding his hand and the waters collapsing back on Israel's enemy means Israel herself is participating in the judgment. And so it will be for us on the last day when we judge the nations with Christ. Paul makes this utterly plain in his epistles. We will join Christ in the judgment of the nations. And so again, these are the waters of judgment. Two parties enter into the midst of the sea, but only one party is delivered, the chosen people of God. And now we're going to pick up on the second theme, the second theme of the waters. And this might be the most unfamiliar with you, but perhaps not. Israel's passage through the Red Sea not only marks judgment and salvation, But it is also their baptism into a new birth. We know this is Israel's baptism for two reasons. First reason is that the Red Sea, as we've already established, corresponds to Noah's flood. And the flood, the great flood, is a picture of baptism. This is made clear by by Peter. In 1 Peter 3, he writes, Because they did not formally formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, he's talking about this generation of wickedness, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so the flood was always a prototype of baptism and now the Red Sea which corresponds to the flood is the same thing but it's Israel's baptism because we're seeing a clear picture through redemptive history of who is the people of God God intended that the whole world would be his in creation He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the point was to fill the earth with worshipers. But sin entered in so quickly. And through this redemptive narrative, we see that there's a specific people being set aside so that a specific Messiah might come. And so we have the people of God, Noah and his family spared, and through their lineage, we eventually get to Abraham and the promise, the covenant given to Abraham, and now we have a nation, a nation being formed. And so this is the birth of a nation through the waters. This is their baptism. And we also the second point, how we know this is their baptism, is is made plain by Paul in First Corinthians 10. Paul in writing the church, saying that all these things are for our instruction. I don't want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. This might be obvious but think about this for a second. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's writing to a Gentile church in Corinth. And he's saying, our fathers. Why? Because if you have a faith like Abraham, you are a child of Abraham and heirs of the promise. And so Israel are our, literally Israel are our forefathers, spiritually, spiritually. Because we too are children of Abraham, should we believe in the promise. And he's saying, don't be unaware that all of this was taking place because they were baptized into Moses. Which is another way of saying they were baptized into the law, the Mosaic Covenant. But all of this was pointing to Jesus because they were fed in the wilderness after being baptized into Moses and they drank from the spiritual rock. They literally drank from a rock. And that rock, Paul's saying, was Christ. The rock was Christ this whole time. And so we know that this crossing is a baptism for Israel. But what do I mean specifically when I say it was the baptism of their new birth? Well, I think we already understand that salvation is being born again, as Jesus teaches. And that's certainly true, and and I do mean that, but... What I'm emphasizing here is a little, something a little different. Is that here is the new creation as the people of God. This is not just, is not just people experiencing a spiritual new birth. Th- this is a new creation taking place. And it's cosmic in nature. It's cosmic in nature. The old world, Egypt, has been judged... And utterly ruined for the glory of God. And Israel is being birthed as a new free nation. In verse 21, we see that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. What's interesting is that our, our language somewhat fails us here. The word for wind, me, it, there's a double meaning taking place in the original language communicates that double meaning quite well and we have to explain it because we don't see it. The Hebrew language, the word used that's often translated as wind or breath is the very same word that we use for spirit. It's a Hebrew word, ruach, and it means, it literally means spirit or wind or breath. And so if you kind of think about some of the themes of the Old Testament, when God breathes the breath of life into Adam after forming him from the dirt, he's breathing into him his spirit, quite literally. And later, you see this in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in the prophets, that when a man dies, the Lord removes his spirit from him. Because he no longer breathes. And so all of creation, while they don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit, in a very real sense, if they have the breath of life, they are living by the Spirit of God in the sense that he's mercifully sustaining them all while they live. And when they die, he receives back that which he gave them. That's why that hymn we sang just before the sermon says, all that borrows life from him. It's all borrowed. It's all from him. And so this word here also means, means spirit. And so another way to understand the text would be this. The Lord drove the sea back by his strong spirit all night, and the waters were divided. And the waters were divided. So, so why does that matter? Well, well, hopefully it sounds familiar. Listen to this. This is, why, this is what I mean by new creation. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jump down to verse 9 in Genesis, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. I hope you see the similarity of the spirit of God ho- hovering over the waters and commanding the waters to divide. It's the same language. It's the same language because there's an act of creation is taking place right now. God is commanding the cosmos, the created world to obey the voice of his spirit that a new birth might take place, and it's the birth of his people, the nation of Israel. We see patterns of creation and recreation throughout the scriptures, from Genesis, which is the first creation, to Noah's flood, okay? Noah's flood, the waters come back, so we almost go back to a primordial state in creation, and then the waters recede, recreation. And Moses is, excuse me, Noah is given the commission again to go and populate the earth. It's genuine recreation. We see, so we have Genesis to Noah's flood, to the Red Sea crossing, to Ezekiel's valley of the dry bones, to Christ's resurrection, and all the way, all the way to the last day when we will resurrect and the earth will be made new because of Christ's victory over sin and death. So these patterns are throughout the scriptures and they're meant to remind us of the overwhelming picture that God is making something new. And he's, there's a point to it all. There's a point to it all. And the point is Christ. We know that. Because he's the climax of this creation, recreation narrative in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Israel's crossing of the sea is just another sign of the pattern of God that he's put forth in the scriptures. And to kind of further back my uh, argument here, I'm going to read the second half of Psalm 77. This was written by a psalmist named Asaph. And listen to this. I I think it's quite profound in light of what we've just seen. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. I'm going to stop right there. It sounds quite cosmic in nature, doesn't it? It sounds like all of the powers of the earth are being shaken at their core. Because God is doing something special. Hopefully it reminds you of the creation event where God takes what's chaotic and turns it into order. The whole earth is trembling at what He's doing right now. And what is He doing? The psalm continues, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, and how the whole Earth trembled at what the Lord was doing, that caught the cosmic entities that God has set place in the universe. We're all seeing the strong hand of Lord and were trembling in fear of Him, the deep of the waters. The very earth itself. Why? Because he was making something new. He was creating a new people unto himself. This was no small event, but it rather shook the whole world. In fact, later in, this, in the book of Exodus, we're, we'll see that the nations feared Israel because they heard word Of what happened. So the Lord indeed got glory over Pharaoh and his horsemen and his chariots. The whole earth trembled. And as I said earlier, we know that everything that has been written has been written for our instruction, it's ours. Paul calls the patriarchs of Israel our fathers. So all of these things took place not only for Israel then and there, but for us here and now. And all of this, all of this is pointing to the final new creation that will be consummated through Jesus Christ. Israel was baptized and born again through those waters, but they were baptized into Moses, which is another way, again, of saying they were baptized into the law. But we now bear witness to the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are no longer baptized into the law, but instead are baptized into Christ, in whom we now fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, in whom we have been born again. So as I conclude, as we draw to an end, I want to highlight just those three points again. As those of us who have been called by God in Christ Are we going to fall into unbelief and despair when calamity arises? Or are we we going to trust the commands and the promises of God? Will we hear the word and respond in faith? Or will we murmur and complain like Israel? I'm telling all of us today, we must entrust ourselves to God and obey his word. Even when the way forward is surrounded by darkness, by faith we must go forward. Secondly, as we commit to going forward in faith, we must believe that the Lord's judgments are just and that He will accomplish all that He purposes. The church will be held and kept, that is His promise to us, and her enemies will be destroyed, with the final enemy to be destroyed being death itself. We can trust that He is holding us and keeping us all along the way. And His judgments are just, always. And lastly, for those of you who have been baptized into Christ, rejoice, rejoice. Because like Israel, you have passed through the waters of judgment and you have been delivered by Christ, who is the fulfillment of all Israel's longings. You have been born again into a living hope. And so may we... Respond with those three things in the same way Israel responds at the end of this chapter. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. May we do the same. Let us pray. Lord, how marvelous are your works towards us. Despite our wicked hearts and our rebellious spirits, you have pursued us with steadfast covenant love in Christ your Son. And I pray now we would take that to heart, that you have revealed to us Christ your Son, because you have decreed it that we might know you and belong to you and take you up on your promises. So I pray now that you would stir our hearts to worship you as we ought, If we need to confess the sins of unbelief and fear and murmuring and complaining, may we do so in accord with your scriptures. May we be men and women and children who take you at your word and who move forward despite being surrounded by darkness. We trust that you will be at our rear even when we can't see you, that you hold us and that you keep us for your name's sake, and this is all for you because it's all from you. Our salvation is from you, and you simply ask us, as you've called us, Jesus, to follow me, and so may we do just that. May we follow you in faith and obedience all the days of our lives. I pray all this now according to the mercies that are ours in Christ. Amen.